0: 1968 was a hell of a year. Protests erupted around the world against Vietnam, against the old guard, against I Love Lucy and Brill Cream and Levittown and the cops in Alabama, but against bigger things too, against capitalism and authoritarianism and colonialism and racism and inequality. We know about the protests in Berkeley and Prague, but they happened in Pakistan and Brazil too. It was like 1848 a year where a new world threatened to sweep into existence paris where student protests swelled in size until joined by droves of workers they precipitated a general strike came to exemplify the time all of france was shut down and briefly charles de gaulle fled to germany the protests almost spawned a revolution i say briefly because it was less than 24 hours and then de gaulle was back calling for new elections which he won handily but the spring of 1968 had a lasting effect. No one loved De Gaulle, and he was gone within a year, and in the long run, the ideals of the protesters changed the trajectory of France. There was a new ideology brewing in those universities that in many ways had more power to change the world than any column of tanks. I'm talking about post-structuralism, deconstructionism, post-modernism. Now, there's film criticism, and then there is film criticism. And then there is critique du film. And this podcast does not really fall into any of those three categories. In fact, it barely qualifies as three guys talking about movies, and I seriously question whether it meets the minimum standards of even being a podcast. But we're lucky to live in a world where everyone is a film critic, because it means the 10,000 Tumblr pages devoted to analyzing the Marxist subtext of Moana generate so much content noise that you can pretty much say anything about anything and. Nothing really rises much above the din unless you look for it. So, thanks, anyway, for being here. But it wasn't always so. Once upon a time, the film critic held a lofty position in public life, and nowhere was this more true than in France in the 1960s. Film criticism then joined forces with this brand new post-structuralism, each legitimizing the other, to offer a new and radical critique not just of the policies of the ruling order, but of the whole way of seeing from whence the ruling order came. Film critics stood athwart this great 20th century art form of film and subjected it to a withering eye. Of course, this intellectual universe of deconstruction was pushed through the cheesecloth of 50 years of undergraduate incomprehension and tarted up with the toenail polish of Howard Zinn, and it's effectively now an endless war that every day makes my Twitter feed a fresh hell. But the war started a long time ago. What does this have to do with Army of Shadows? Well, for us living through a similar time where critics have subsumed creators, it should not surprise us too much that this movie was deemed incorrect by a small cadre of influential intellectuals. Why? Well, it showed De Gaulle briefly, and probably accurately for what it's worth, as being the de facto leader of the resistance, which was just not the fashionable read of history in 1969. Army of Shadows didn't celebrate De Gaulle, it just showed him doing what he did, which is hang out in London and try to organize the resistance at a distance. Mm, I like that. What the critics of 1969 expected was, I don't know, a depiction of him as a pirate or a murderer, maybe a papier-mâché marionette or a claymation rat, who knows. Army of Shadows was denounced and suppressed for its failure of tone and went generally unseen until its rediscovery and re almost 40 years later, in 2006. We're lucky to have this film now, and fortunate that the long arc of history rebukes zealots just as it does the reactionaries they despise. Melville did not live to see his film reappraised and his reputation restored. C'est la vie. We're not communists, but we can still have comrades. On today's review of the 1969 Jean-Pierre Melville neo-realist forgotten masterpiece... Army of Shadows.
1: Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast in whom the English have limited confidence, so instead of the weapons we asked for, they sent us radios. I'm Ben Harrison.
2: I'm Adam
0: Pranica. And I'm John Roderick.
1: John, uh, the, the late night text that, that comes from you the night before every Friendly Fire, always slightly unnerfing, <laughs> asking whether or not the movie is worth watching. <laughs> <laughs> I always wonder whether you're about to punch out of the project altogether.
2: It's, it always comes as sort of a threat. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, right. About 10 or 11, I send one out that's like, you guys want to give me the lowdown on this movie? Is it, uh, Or uh, should, we, should we go a different direction?
2: What I didn't want to say was that it was almost two and a half hours because I thought that would be a discouragement to you. I was not ready for
0: how long the movie is, especially starting it, starting watching it at whatever, 1130 last night.
2: (laughs) That's the perfect time. Yeah,
1: it's also, it's a shame because there is a cleaned up uh, 2K criterion version of this movie, but I did not find it on any of the streaming things. So we watched a earlier, very bad standard definition transfer of it. And it's such a dark movie. Like, the, like you can tell from how, how crazy the digital artifact thing is in the dark scenes that there's an incredible richness to this film. But uh, the version of it that we saw doesn't, uh, doesn't really put that on display.
2: I'll say that's the version that you guys saw. I went to my local video store and picked up that version, the cleaned no. up version. And it is a beautiful print. You did it. Wow. It is gorgeous. Wow Recommended
1: Very jealous I will say that it's about the ugliest transfer of a film that I have seen so far for this project Which is saying a lot
2: Oh no, (laughs) that is so unfortunate Because one of the things I wanted to talk about was how beautiful the film was and And how contrasty it was And how great those blacks looked And to hear that you guys saw Splotch Vision That's no fun
1: the original cinematographer actually supervised that restoration. And this film was never released in the United States until like the mid 2000s because it came out in France and was really panned because it was a time at which Charles de Gaulle had really fallen out of favor. And Charles de Gaulle is maybe the only kind of like uncomplicated French character in the film, because all he is is an arm pinning a medal on a guy.
2: (laughs) You see the back of his shoulder. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The unmistakable shoulder of Charles de Gaulle.
1: It was right after 1968 that this film came out, and uh, that was a time of pretty deep political chaos in France, and anything that made Charles de Gaulle seem okay was fairly unpalatable. So it really just crashed on on the launch pad despite being viewed in retrospect as kind of a masterpiece
0: i almost want to see this criterion print of it i'm willing to sit for two and a half hours and watch it again just because it was unmistakably like a really beautifully well-made film and i don't have the eye that you guys do for the the richness of the of the film itself so i was just kind of watching it in a like a dummy thinking wow this is so beautiful
2: Well, whether or not you're getting a higher resolution, like you do, you you can appreciate the intentionality of the camera movement. Like the the compositions are really beautiful, and what I thought was as interesting as the visuals was the sound and the use of the sound in this film, the ticking of the clocks and the footfalls of the shoes in an empty street during an escape. I mean, sound throughout the film really plays a part in. And heightening the paranoia.
0: Yeah, although I would, like, I would like to really call out the sound of the gate locking yeah. and unlocking in the, in the scene at the insane asylum. That was, a, it was such an intentional choice to have that very complicated sound happen 25 times during the course <laughs> of that scene. And I was like, does this lock mechanism symbolize something? Is this a really common lo- door lock in France? W- th- it was such an intentional choice and so confusing to me
2: because it was such an irritating sound. Were you able to watch this film with subtitles, John? This film being <laughs> uh, in French with I English did. subtitles.
0: I did get I did get one with the subtitles.
1: That must have been nice. That lock sound was one of the tension-heightening parts of one of many very tense scenes. Yeah. And that scene is just ratcheting the tension up the entire time, and it winds up leaving you with nothing cathartic to sink your teeth into. And that's sort of true of many of the really tense scenes in the movie. You know, like it's this movie is not about giving you happy endings. When uh, I mean, even even when there is a happy ending, like the scene at the beginning where he escapes into the barber shop and. He's, like, looking at the Vichy propaganda on the walls and thinking that this barber is going to slice his throat. Even when he doesn't die, it's it's not really even a relief. It's just like a, well, I guess he has to go on to the next terrifying event in his life.
2: That was such a great scene because it showed the tension in people between what they show outwardly to what they feel inside. Like, the right. the barber was willing to show the propaganda But he's also, through action, aiding someone who is on the resistance, wordlessly even. And for it to happen so early on in the film was a great way to set the scene for what France was like during this time in the occupation. And I think one thing I wanted to say early on is that watching World War II films throughout my life has mostly consisted of like giant action set piece films where it's very clearly uh, the United States versus Japan or the allies fighting in Europe. And I didn't watch many films about occupied Europe and the resistance to occupation. And I really think you miss a lot of the story by ignoring this. And I'm speaking for myself. I did and do not know a lot about this. And I'm hoping maybe... John and Ben, you can jump in and sort of set the scene for what's happening in France during the middle 1940s after the occupation and why a story like this is so important to tell. Because if if all you're familiar with about World War Two is shooting down fighter planes and bombing Germany, then I think you're missing a lot of the story, like I had been for a long time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I knew more about it. I feel like um, this is... A bit of a of an on ramp for me as well, and I was reading about it. Um, Melville, the director, was actually in the resistance himself. He was in the French army before, or you know, during the invasion and occupation, and then was in the resistance. And he was pretty mad at how many of his countrymen became essentially complicit in the occupation. I mean, it's got a very like fuck the police message. This film, yeah,
0: when we proposed this movie and as i was kind of gearing up to watch it i was stealing myself a little bit because resistance movies have an unfortunate tendency to make the resistance seem like it was a bigger part of the of the it's a revisionism right of of a war story nobody at the end of a war wants to say, oh, my grandfather was a total collaborationist, right? All of a sudden, (laughs) all of a sudden, everybody was in the resistance. And there are plenty of movies like that. And I was like, oh, here we go, you know, a resistance movie, and we're going to see how the noble French resistance actually defeated the Nazis, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And I thought this movie was phenomenal at setting the tone of wartime France, because it did not portray Uh, the French at all as heroic people or as the, or the resistance as being a widespread popular movement. It really described it accurately. And I think Ben, you use the word paranoia and it's exactly the tone that the whole film has because you're interacting with your own countrymen. You're all under an occupied army and yet you don't know who to trust. You don't know how, you don't know whether to trust the barber or the who, you know, who can you talk to?
1: There's that scene at the beginning where he's in the back of the paddy wagon and the gendarme that is talking to him is relating to him as just, a, you know, hey, you're a guy, I'm a guy, let's have a chat. and then yeah. And then like looks down and sees the handcuffs and you see it wash over the gendarme's face like what a gulf there is in between them because one of them is 100% Team Vichy and the other one is on his way to a concentration camp to be locked up for being in the resistance.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, for countrymen, right? And it suggests all those Orwellian um, overtones, you know, that everyone is a a spy or reporting on you. It's a feeling that I think a lot of uh, is really present in our our now memory of uh, Behind the Iron Curtain, where you want to be a free thinker, but you're afraid that your neighbor is peering in your window. And so what, what the situation in France was, was the Germans invaded and, and defeated the French pretty fast and then didn't really have the interest or the manpower to completely occupy and force all of France to submit um, to a military occupation. And they weren't really, they, they didn't have a, there wasn't a need for it you know in poland as the wehrmacht is moving east you know they're occupying the country by just by default because they're headed to russia right so they there's german army everywhere this is adam's homeland so i'm trying to make it relevant to him
2: <laughs> <laughs> i just started paying attention when you said the are like, poland so you were like poland Thanks. what Borscht.
0: <laughs> so what, what they did, what the Germans did was they left most of France under its own authority. And Ben keeps talking about the Vichy regime, which is that they just put in a government, a, a, effectively a puppet government, but a government of Frenchmen that was located in Vichy, a, a, a town. And they took, over, they took over the apparatus of the French government, including the French military. So the French had an entire navy of warships that at the after the Germans invaded, the navy was still under French control. Like there was never they never raised the white flag. They just now were flying the French flag and that represented the Vichy government. So there was a, a there were a lot of instances in, in the war where and it ended up that the British sank the French fleet rather than have it fall into the hands of the Germans. So it was very complicated, right? We were never, the British were never at war with the French, but had to take this military action in order to keep this French Navy from falling into English or from German hands. So like you're seeing in this movie, right? The gendarmerie are still the authority. It's the normal police, the normal army, the normal bureaucrats.
1: Well, and the critique like that is sort of impregnated into the entire film is that these are like the kind of people that become police officers are like inherently authoritarian and are more interested in authoritarianism than any particular like like defending any particular you know country or whatever well true
0: although there were i mean there was a lot of anti-semitism in france French volunteers actually populated an entire brigade or, uh, of the Wehrmacht, or larger, like a, they were called the Charlemagne Brigade, I guess. It was all French soldiers fighting for Germany. I mean, France and Germany have had a competition with one another for uh, 1,500 years or whatever, or longer. Uh, there's a lot of chauvinism, but also there's a lot of like go along to get along. And I think after the invasion, most French people didn't see their lives change that much at first. And so most apolitical people didn't really care one way or the other. It didn't affect them since there weren't really Germans in all the little small towns sitting there. with the, It was not like every little town was a prison camp where there was some guy with black boots getting his cigar cleaned or whatever. <laughs> uh most french just uh, just were like oh well that sucks i guess but i don't know the trains run on time or whatever they just went a- they just went along it- they weren't collaborating they were just
1: right
2: they, they were just living
1: their lives
0: they're just living their lives
2: that go along tone though is something that permeates this entire film and it's a depiction of of conflict that we don't often get in a war film like no one has a real hate on for anyone else outwardly the struggle is inward, and the struggle is depicted in a scant look or, or something totally nonverbal. Like, no one screams at anyone else in this film. There is hardly even any gunfire in it.
1: Yeah, and, like, the killings that leap to my mind are them killing their own people for right. either betraying them or being compromised in some way. Like, the, they're not even doing that much, like... I mean, like, when I think of French Resistance, I guess I'm picturing, like, guys in a Citroën pulling up to a German army barracks and <laughs> shooting a Tommy gun out the window and then peeling out.
0: Yeah. Can you think of a single operation in this whole film that didn't, that basically wasn't an internal dispute? They never blew up anything. They never killed a single German.
1: I mean, it's all, like, implied, you know, like, the they get the landing strip going at the uh, royalist... Uh, right (laughs) french guys uh chateau for a little while and it's like oh yeah like they're probably getting some like some real like tough black ops dudes in there to to go around uh setting explosives under bridges or something
0: well that's actually the crazy thing most of the operations of the french resistance were not commando they were providing intelligence to the allies those radios were really important because they were talking about um, they were describing the, the backside of the Atlantic wall, which was the, which was the defenses, the German defenses along the coast. They were talking about troop movements and material movements. They were, you know, they were communicating a lot of intelligence. The resistance published newsletters and pamphlets that encouraged French people to remember that they were, you know, that the occupation was temporary, that they were still, they were still fighting. You know, it was a lot of propaganda. The problem is if they, if, if they, if they blew up a German staff car, the Germans at the time would line up everybody in the village and shoot them against a wall. Like that reprisal, uh, technology was how the Germans kept the French in line so they learned the resistance learned really early like yeah sure you go shoot some lieutenant in a cafe but the they're gonna kill 60 people in, in reprisal so that was that was what was so great about this movie because you know so often a movie about a resistance will will focus on that kind of red dawn <laughs> version of like you know we're heroes and everybody was on board and we're just blowing up the you know the russians and there's yeah. nothing they can do
1: Nobody shouted
0: Wolverines one single time in this film. <laughs> no. I mean, the main character spent a month living alone in a, in a house with no power. And that was like, they basically, the film showed the entire month. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a really tricky posture for them to be in. They could not openly fight a war because of this, this thing we're talking about. This like, well, we're just kind of going along. Everybody's just going along.
2: That might be a good way to start talking about the hero of the film, our main character, Philippe heroism depicted as cerebral and not red Dawn resistance. Like he is unflappable throughout the film in a way that really makes you root for him. There's a, there's a scene early on where, where he's being interrogated by an officer and his character qualities are described in voiceover In a really interesting way I don't think you get uh, I don't think you get that in very many films Most films right. allow a character To describe itself through action Or deed But here's Philippe sat down uh, Handcuffed to a chair Having a guy read over his file Much in the same way uh, John Rambo's file was read to him <laughs> In <laughs> First Blood Part 2 Oh Native American and German huh? Sarcastic <laughs> and an engineer <laughs> combination (laughs) like I thought that was an interesting thing to include in this file like sarcasm
1: it was like the French commandant of the camp and he's reading like a dossier on Gerbier and uh,
2: thanks thanks Ben anytime you can correct my pronunciation please do
1: Did you said his first name, I said his last name, which is what they refer to him as mostly in the film.
2: I thought for sure I said Gerbier earlier, but uh, okay.
1: (laughs) What is he, a resistance fighter or a brand of baby food? Give me a break. You know, uh, Dick Nixon was the Gerbier baby. (laughs) When he shows up at the camp, I was like, oh, is this a prison camp movie? I kind of thought it wasn't. And then for the first half I kind of thought it might turn into something that was kind of vignettes and it would follow one character and then pass the story off to another like when um, when he sends uh, the younger Jardy brother to Paris like it seemed like the film just kind of became about him for a while yeah
0: yeah, yeah I wondered about that too whether whether it was going to be a, a series
1: yeah and then like Matilda walks away with that with the radio and the in the valise and I thought maybe it was going to become about her. And then she disappears for a long time, but then she comes back and becomes like a pretty significant character for the last half of the film. One of the few uh, female characters we've encountered in the entire history of this podcast.
2: Matilda (laughs) is a fucking heavy in this film and strong female lead. She's great both because of what she does functionally in the film, but also in the respect conferred to her by the other male characters to underscore that like they love her they respect her and they kind of fear her her ability
1: yeah and she's she's got an interesting story like at some point somebody asks like do your husband or daughter know what you do really and she she (laughs) says no like they all have to operate under such secrecy I mean they never show her with her family but that's all these other dudes sort of read as being either like bachelors or, you know, detached and aloof dudes who don't tell their wives anything, whether or not it's about the resistance. Yeah. Uh, She talks about how she's got a husband and daughter and they become a liability for her.
0: Yeah. More than anything else in the film, that, that little tidbit really does capture that energy of how paranoid and how underground and, how difficult it it was during the occupation. You know, we see the, the privation, we see the, the sort of the noir vibe, but, but for her to say like, no, neither my husband or daughter is aware that I am like a major figure in the resistance. (laughs) It's like, Oh wow. So you do all this and then just go home at night with your like basket of groceries and are like hello everyone like it's just (laughs) it it just suggests so much secret life uh it's a lot to chew on
1: i watched this film with my wife and i was a little hesitant to ask if she had any (laughs) resistance cell shit going on that she she didn't want me to know about you know i feel like we share a lot with each other but that would that would be a big surprise
0: well she's not going to tell you if you ask her directly you have to start (laughs) you have to start shadowing her
1: Right. To get a uh, private investigator to follow her.
0: (laughs) Well, I have to say uh, the characters in this film were so hard boiled. The only one of them with any real sense of humor is Jardy, you know, the the former pilot, the the um, the the rakish one.
1: The uh, the younger Jardy because there's two. Oh
0: right, right, younger Jardy, not his old, not his older brother, the 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 big chief.
1: Yeah, I mean, and speaking of paranoid, they don't even know that they're both in the same resistance cell or
0: in the same rowboat. I couldn't quite figure that out. I mean, they were sitting ten feet from each other and they didn't recognize one another. I struggled with whether or not because the younger Jardy was doing a voiceover throughout yeah. that scene, whether he had made such a clear distinction in his mind between the chief and the underlings that even as he recognized his own brother, he didn't say anything like, Oh my God, I thought you were just a, uh, you know, I thought you were a special flower and look at you or whether he was just, his face was in shadow and there was no, that was a really weird moment in the film.
1: Adam, what was your read on that? Cause you saw a, a, clearer version of the film could they see each other's faces was it meant to be so dark that it was just I mean
2: that was unclear to me too to be honest I don't know why they didn't regard each other as as familiar part of it too was like that was a little bit day for night wasn't it like yeah that whole film is
1: not great at depicting what it's like to be in the dark yeah because film is such a visual medium and Melville is a master filmmaker and this is one of his masterpieces and even in this film it is a little unclear what they're going for in that scene because you're caught between the tension of like, we want to show something, we don't want a you know five minute set piece to just be a black screen and audio, but in shooting day for night or shooting dusk for night or whatever they did, this uh, it makes it seem like a little unbelievable that these two brothers would be in, in each other's presence and not make each other. Well, right. especially
0: since that, since one of the things that gives Jardy the younger, his humanity is this struggle he has to identify with his brother. And, and to, he always feels like his brother is kind of a, uh, an unknowable other to him. And he goes and has this strange little lunch with him in his study, his brother, the famous philosopher, yeah. And is thinking to, thinking out loud to himself like, well, we don't have anything in common. He could never know about my secret life in the resistance.
1: Yeah, I'm just a I'm just, you know, a leather jacket wearing tough and my brother has this podcasting
2: booth in the middle <laughs> of his salon. <laughs> That's a great setup. Yeah. I was very envious of that. Yeah. But
0: and, and and I guess I guess everyone else in the film, we see nothing of their private life, but Jardy we we see his background. When he comes out of his his brother's mansion and heads back up the street in Paris wearing his tough guy leather jacket, you're aware of him being kind of an, a, a little bit of a, an aristocrat. That That's where he gets his, his um, je ne sais quoi. <laughs> uh, that was one of the things that kept me a little bit outside of this movie was that everyone else was so hard bitten. They never joked with each other there was no teasing it was there was no even camaraderie and some of that was suggested in that first scene Mm -hmm. in the in the prison camp like uh, uh, he uh, appraises his or he appraises his fellow prison mates and is just like well they put me in here with three idiots and two invalids (laughs) and you're like oh this is funny like this is going to be this is going to be good or not. It's not Le Perk, It's, uh, uh it's gerbier. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, and, and so you think like, oh, there's going to be a little bit of irony to this. He's described as sarcastic, mm-hmm. but then there's, there's no, there's no more of that kind of personal flavor in the rest of the film. And it was a little bit, it was, a, I, I wish that there, had been s- slightly more character development, per- of gerbier especially.
1: Yeah. You get a little uh, soupçon of it after oh, the, the metal <laughs> scene where they go see con uh, with the Wind. What
2: a fucking show-off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. You do get a little... Uh, un petit peu. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, wake me up when we get to the denouement. <laughs>
1: Adam, why don't you go eat a croissant in the corner? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fucking
0: assholes. Uh, yeah, Adam, put a little bit, bit more uh, café au lait in you. And
2: Is that? Are you talking into a mic with like a really long stick at the end, like a like a, like a French cigarette?
1: <laughs> you, you, you don't want Adam to have any lait in his café, or he'll spend the rest of the episode dans la toilette. <laughs>
2: uh, are you mm-hmm. done? welcome back to fireside chat on kmax with me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the west coast oliver wong and morgan rhodes go ahead caller hey uh i'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful but like also helps me discover artists and albums that i've never heard of yeah man sounds like you need to listen to heat rocks every week myself and i'm morgan Rhodes, and my co-host here
1: oliver wong talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed
2: their lives
0: guests like moby open Mike eagle talk about albums by prince joni mitchell and so much more
2: yo what's that show called again heat rocks deep dives into hot records
0: every thursday on maximum fun
2: to me was unintentionally so I thought was was when uh Gerbierre taped his glasses to his face for the skydive, the parachute mission. Yeah, with band yeah. yeah. I thought that was and that entire set piece I thought was great. That was like a good ten minute scene in the film of a man who has never jumped out of a plane before, yeah. is given only the the leanest bit of instruction about it. <laughs> and then like a low-key badass moment, falling asleep. Yeah, wife like
1: talked about this a lot. She was like, "No fucking way!" Like, I'm I'm in hysterics when there's a little bit of turbulence, and this guy's taking a nap. Bullshit.
2: <laughs> I love that, and he's getting food and drink service on the flight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: that guy, the 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 RAF sergeant or whatever, who during the during the anti aircraft fire comes back, straps a parachute on himself. And it's like, we should have our parachutes on and the door open just in case they hit us. <laughs> and he says, just in case they hit us by accident, as though they're not here on a secret mission. He's like, no, 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 they think we're somebody else. But anyway, we should be poised here. And then when they get through it, he's like, oh, okay, anyway, back to sleep with, you know, like, well, <laughs> I'll wake you when we get there. That yeah. was
1: all really great. It was amazing.
0: Uh, the one critique I would have about that is that They have this Lancaster bomber and they were, they didn't have enough like footage in reserve of Lancaster bombers to avoid using a model. And the model was so bad. (laughs) I mean, the model was great. Some, you know, some 14 year old in France in 1968 built that Lancaster bomber from a Revell modeling kit. Yeah. Uh, But all this and the thing is i was watching a terrible print i can't imagine what it looked like in a good print
2: it was a little flyer, flying leather nexy right with the rotation of the model and such
0: yeah you could see the fishing wire that it was hanging from <laughs> and at first i was like why are you doing this like this is unnecessary you could just suggest the plane from inside you don't you didn't need to have all these scenes but then later on you kind of do need to actually see the airplane in the sky you know th- th- because there's it's such a long scene it would have been weird to never see a long shot but it was uh, given how much the cars and the street scenes and all the other props and settings were were so faithfully done like i don't know where they found all those citrones, but uh, but oh oh i guess i do because they kept making that car <laughs> That, that, that World War II era drone was still in production, I think, for a lot longer. But you know, they had it all looked really good. And, um, and then here's this weird model. So that that felt like, you know, it's 1968 was the same year that 2001 a Space Odyssey came out. So yeah. there, there were special effects.
1: Speaking of being pedantic about conveyances, do you guys want to hear a moment of uh, extreme pedantry from IMDb? Yes.
0: Is this about the is this about the Citroen Traction Avant? Is it the thing where they were like, oh well, they didn't even have the even have the eleven CV at that
1: point? Uh, no, this is actually about the submarine. The submarine used in the film is a French Navy Arthurs class submarine Argonaut. S-636, <laughs> even the number and name are visible during the boarding scene. It was launched on 23 October 1958, which was more Must than in. 15 years <laughs> after the events that take place in the film. Oh my god, how could they do it? <laughs> I did think that that submarine looked a little, like, the, the submarines in World War II were all like, uh, they had like deck guns and stuff, right?
0: Well, a lot of them.
1: Like, uh, did, were the, were the British operating like sleek rounded off submarines like this at the time?
0: Well, the, uh, you know, the British weren't famous for their submarines.
1: Well, this was uh, supposed to, supposed to be a British submarine.
0: You know what? As that, as the submarine came up, I was so impressed that, that it was actually used, a submarine. Yeah. <laughs> rather than a, rather than a model in a bathtub. Yeah. Um, that uh that i i was not at all and i you know like i'm not a i'm not a pet pedant at, at that level of <laughs> like well maybe i am wrong submarine but no that 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 didn't offend me
1: yeah i, I was uh, i was pretty excited to, t- to see a real submarine come up out of the water
0: well and i guess that that uh, that sort of begs the question uh no it does not beg the question god i keep saying it,
1: that it, phrase. oh it uh, It's okay, John, because we're speaking extemporaneously, and that is what that phrase means in extemporaneous English speech, despite what the grammar assholes on the internet would have you believe. We do not live in France. We do not have the uh, French Language Institute dictating the meanings of all of our words. Language adapts. Yes,
0: and and I agree, although I keep one of those language assholes in my own head. <laughs> I would never go on the internet and speak to anyone else that way, but there's- His there's family one. is
1: terrified. Uh, they want to know where he uh, is.
0: Uh, there's, there's one li- li- sitting on a very hard chair in my mind going, God, stop it! <laughs> uh, was the production of this film, like, sponsored by the French government, and was this a big production in France at the time, or, I mean, we're so used to seeing, like- independent films and foreign films but was this like a big budget action flick in 1968
1: I think it was I don't know how much the government had to do with it but it it was fairly I mean this is a very high production value film it was just weird timing because also the you know, the battle of Algiers stuff was happening around this time. And the, and the like lionizing or canonizing of the French resistance was a little bit politically dubious at that time because like resistance fighters were, you know, like the Algerians were resistance fighters. So celebrating resistance fighters as, as resistance fighters and, uh, not as patriots or whatever was, uh, not something that was very palatable to the French audience uh, at the time.
0: Yeah, it was a complicated year. If you think about what was happening in France right before this, it was, you know, a singular moment in their history, their relationship to their own history during the war, super fraught. And I think all, all through the 20th century, we forget that Europeans continue to wrestle with the war in ways that we're insulated from
1: yeah I mean like Melville was fucking pissed at his countrymen I mean he's this film is as much an indictment of French people as anything else and he like I think he's quoted as saying like there were a lot more people not in the resistance than there were in the resistance
0: yeah yeah it's really it's it is super biting every time you have a a lengthy conversation with a with a regular French person in this movie they seem they seem very shallow but But if you think about it, I mean, if you, if you're growing up in the Netherlands or in Belgium or France or Sweden and you say, Hey, granddad, what did you do in the war? Right. And granddad says, well, I kept working at the barbershop and (laughs) when the Germans came in and wanted a shave, I tried to give them a bad shave, but not bad (laughs) enough that they noticed. Right. Just ba- I just like had bad vibes about it.
2: Mm-hmm. I was I mean, stingy a- with the lather,
0: <laughs> right? It's a lot different than you know. Like my dad, if you believe him, he <laughs> fired a shot in anger, which is to say he claimed that he opened the window of his DC three and shot a p- shot his pistol at a Japanese zero. I'm not sure that that's a hundred percent true, but it's possible. But he, you know, he flew. He he was in the war. He flew. Uh, he flew arms and materiel and wounded soldiers back and forth out of the small islands in the in the South Pacific. But to listen to him and his best friend, Jack Tanner, talk about the war, they both single handedly saved the world from fascism. <laughs> um, and they would sit in a they'd sit in a Chinese restaurant in Tacoma and argue about who and, and Tanner drove a um, a landing craft. He didn't fire a shot in anger either. But he, but he was, you know, he was there on the lines but they both saved the world Uh, they did not have to wrestle with what they would have done if there had been a japanese occupying occupying army in tacoma right uh and how they would have comported themselves if there was a threat that their daughter was going to be sent as a comfort woman to the eastern front
1: well, I think what, realistically, the Japanese would have occupied Spokane first, right?
0: Well, sure, they would have parachuted in <laughs> to Spokane to take over the very crucial uh, like, center point of American industry.
1: Yeah. Spokane. Uh, I wanted to talk to you guys about the former French noble who lived in the chateau and like let Gerbier set up there for a little while. Because he was a royalist and had, like, hmm. trained up all the, all the, like, indentured servants or whatever that worked on his land to be, a like, a, an armed platoon. And, like, his, his idea was if there's ever a royalist rebellion, we'll go take over the, the town hall in the, in the nearby town. But when the Germans take over, he's, like, he's more a nationalist than a royalist or as much a nationalist as a royalist.
0: There is a little bit of humor in that scene. Uh, You can see it on Gerbier's face as he's walking uh, with the Baron across the estate and on the Baron's face as he describes the fact that he, um, yeah, he initially put his little militia together because he was anti-Republican, but, you know, like war brings strange bedfellows together and they're both kind of laughing about it. You know, they both recognize how ridiculous it is. And I thought that was really charming because it was a you know an acknowledgement like, if we weren't in this war together right now, we would be probably not working with a common cause. But anyway, high five, am I right? I mean we could do an entire podcast on the ups and downs, ins and outs of the French government uh over the the two hundred years, and I'd love to start that with you guys if you want. We could also (laughs) talk about the Italian government but like the french third republic was this lot less long period you know from the mid 1800s and it was basically i mean like napoleon III in the uh, made himself emperor again until like 1870
2: a lot of people found Napoleon III derivative of the first. Two yeah, Napoleons. right. Well,
0: Napoleon II was was uh, like didn't really get the ratings. Yeah.
2: Napoleon II was only supposed to take pictures. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> but there was there was a real like reestablish the monarchy side of uh, w- within French politics. Like right. that wasn't just a that wasn't like a lost cause. There actually were people. Um, you know like a whole movement in France and actually you might be surprised there is still a pretender to the throne of France who lives to this very day in Spain he's a young guy he's about my age and he's known as the yeah he's um
1: and he thinks he has like the the like divine right and everything? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, and he has a whole he has a whole bunch of supporters. In fact he's What a like, dipshit.
1: Oh my he's, god. <laughs> he's
0: the but the thing is he's the cousin of the king of Spain. And he lives in Spain and the king of Spain, Carlos.
1: I guess it's easy to like talk yourself into that being a thing when the two countries next door both still have Monarchy is going right
0: well and and so he lives he lives in Spain but and his cousin Carlos the king uh, thinks he's a dip dipshit. I've read, a, I've read a lot about this guy because it fascinates me. But but he's just like, oh, my God, does, does, do I have to deal with this guy? And he's he's marching around, you know, like, one day, you know, one day I'll be on the throne. God. <laughs> it's
1: really hilarious. Really planning, plotting, and scheming. I'm sure the French will just yeah. welcome him with open arms, you know. Yeah, can you imagine? Candy and flowers. <laughs> oh, boy.
0: Well, and you would think, you know, and the Baron, I'm sure, thought, that he was somewhat impervious to the Germans because he had that sense of his own station above mere politics.
1: Right. It's just kind of an afterthought that he and everybody that works for him gets killed. Like, they, they 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 just kind of describe it in a voiceover.
0: Did you know that the Germans actually employed the guillotine as a form of punishment against French resistance fighters?
1: Yeah, yeah, one of them is th- said that at the end of the film when it's talking about what befell all these people and not a, one of them lived to see the end of the war. I mean, this is a fictionalized story, but it's based on uh, somebody's real experience. and You get of, that not...
2: awful animal house style conclusion to the film <laughs> where they describe one of them troops. getting uh, beheaded with an axe, right? Execution by axe. Wee.
0: Yeah, but there's actually a famous story. There was a, a, a pretty famous woman in the French Resistance who was like a chemist and a bomb maker. And uh, they killed her with a guillotine. Like, what a slap. I mean, more than a slap. It's a chop. Yeah. But still, like an insult. I mean, more than an insult. It's chopping your head <laughs> off.
1: Right. It's sort of insult and injury. <laughs> 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 I mean there is a way to have a slap and a chop and it's slap chop the best way to cut up onions.
0: <laughs> What's interesting about a lot of these films that happen in 1944 in particular. So we're we're talking this movie starts in late 42. It also really portrays France as being in the winter time all the time. Yeah. Like it's never not cold and gray.
1: That opening and shot dark my wife was like, oh, is this going to be a black and white film? And I was like, I don't know. And there was like easily 60 seconds that went by before I saw like a little hint of color. Like Paris is so gray in that shot.
2: Wait a minute. This wasn't a black and white movie? No, it was just very desaturated in parts. I, I think I was watching a black and white movie. What? You might want to change
1: your
0: television settings john <laughs> mine wasn't black and white i'm gonna have to re-watch this movie i
2: i had i i was pretty go over sure. to
1: adam's house while he still has the rental and watch it on the uh, on the big screen my criterion
2: wow. collection box says 145 minutes and color i did not watch a color film in my memory
0: this was a black and white movie whoa
2: So uh, viewers of this film should make their choice. You're either watching the 1969 (laughs) version or the 2006 version. (laughs) I would recommend the one from 06. Wow. I'm a little bit boggled by that.
0: But what I was about to say was you're racing against time, right? Because as soon as the Allies invade in Normandy in June, that fall in August, there was a second invasion of France that we don't talk about very much, which was... They, start, they opened a second front down in the Mediterranean. There was a big invasion down around Marseille, and a and a big part of that invasion were free French troops. De Gaulle had this whole, not just plan, but I mean, De Gaulle was really trying to assert himself over France and wasn't getting a lot of support from the Allies. Roosevelt held De, De Gaulle in total contempt. Didn't like him, wouldn't see him, wouldn't call, you know, like when de gaulle paid a visit to roosevelt they gave him a 17 gun salute instead of a 21 gun (laughs) salute like just that kind of diss over and over nobody wanted de gaulle churchill didn't want nobody wanted him in power in france and he really insisted and so part of the second invasion was free french troops under de gaulle and he basically was like rolling through france going to he was on keeps campaigning you know going through all these little towns like it's me charles de gaulle the leader of france <laughs> and people were like you're great we've been hearing you on the radio but if you're in the french resistance you're like basically waiting for the line right waiting for the line of invasion to go past you and then you're fighting a war at that point rather right. than a than a, a back behind the scenes action and a lot of these characters were executed can you imagine the insult? of being put in front of a firing squad, like two days before the liberating army arrives. Oh, that's one of the most frustrating things about being liberated.
1: Yeah. We talked about this a little bit in the fury episode, that idea of like, it's everybody knows where this thing is heading. So why are we still fighting? Let's
2: get it over with. Let's get it over with. Toward the end of the film, Philippe gets pinched in a restaurant and he gets imprisoned. And this sets up, uh, Pretty intense escape scene that Matilda has planned out. Gerbier does not know this when he is marched into a firing line, and the officer there tells him and his group of prisoners that they need to run to the wall. And because he's such a good sport about things, uh, the one that makes it to the wall will get to live to run again.
0: Right. Not live to see the end of the war, but he just gets another week.
2: <laughs> yeah. Philippe at this point, uh, having been fairly buoyant throughout the film, uh, this, is the, this is the breaking point for him. This is where I believe he is broken because the voiceover in his mind states, fuck this. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to run just because you tell me to. Like, I'm going to take the machine gun and not listen to your orders.
0: Well, that doesn't seem like broken, though. That's like ultimate defiance. Sure. (laughs) Uh, Maybe in the French translation, something was lost, but go ahead with your thought.
2: What he can't (laughs) know later is that, you know, Matilda has hatched the great escape plan. But this scene is so important, I think, in the context of the rest of the film, because like, to me, the occupation is about your lack of agency. And this is a moment that goes from, like, the, the macro idea of that on a countrywide level to the micro essence of that to Philippe directly. He, he's taking back his agency at a truly awful time. He's taking it away from this officer. He's not going to do what he's ordered to do. And while he survives later on, due mostly to Matilda's great planning, I thought that moment was really crucial in understanding... Gerbier's whole deal and the mindset of the resistance in general.
1: Maybe that scene more than any provokes a question in the viewer of, like, what would I be in a context like this? Like, this guy is so dedicated to his, like, internal sense of right and wrong, and, like, what must be done to advance the cause that he believes in, that he's going to, like, stand there and get filled up with bullets. And, uh... (laughs) is hard to put myself in that person's shoes, you know?
0: I think in a moment like that, and that's very much the subtext of this entire movie and any kind of contemplation of a resistance is like, where would I be? Which Where would I be in this? And it's so much easier to imagine yourself as a hero until you're faced with the reality of it and the reality of how much easier it is to just go to work and come home and pretend that you're not... You know, and, and, and harbor resistance sympathies, but not really do anything. Yeah. And I think that's where a lot, you know, that's where you get a lot of these people who ended up being a, quote unquote, a member of the resistance during the war. But actually, it was just that they sat around in their living living rooms and...
1: They uh, changed their avatar on Twitter.
0: Yeah, right. They were, they, they didn't do anything. You know, they were just, um, because it's too hard. But in a moment like that, rather than it be that he was so dedicated to his cause that he did that, I think it was a moment of pure personal integrity. To say in a in a situation like that where no one is watching him. You know, there's only the only the Germans and they are not impressed. They don't care. If you stand there and take their bullets, the firing squad doesn't care and the German officer is going to be like, "Fine, take the bullets," you know, like Um, there's no heroism in that, that anyone will see, but it's personal. And that's a thing I think it's really hard to imagine because some of that comes out of a, of a culture where that kind of personal integrity is really cherished and we don't live in that culture. Now there is a sense, I think in our current day that the idea of dying, not just for a cause, but dying just because you refuse just personally to submit because you're, you have a kind of intrinsic self-worth. I, when I think of, of our contemporary day, it seems like almost everybody I know in the world would grovel for a couple worms rather than (laughs) get their, you know, their uh, hangnail yanked on. Yeah. Um, and so that moment, really stuck with me because yeah what kind of bravery does it take to say you know for another week of living in your prison being tortured by the idea that I'm that a firing squad is looming I'm not going to run for you I'm just going to stand here and take your bullets and go screw yourself like that's heavy
2: I was not expecting that kind of heavy in this film leading up to it I thought this was a great scene and a great character and it all came to a point in this scene,
1: yeah, it's mirrored in the scene where they ha they decide to kill Matilda because she's been compromised. I mean it's like it's a similar thing, like they kind of project that kind of thought process into her, and you have to wonder, I mean, it seems like a plausible theory, but they admit that it's just a theory you know that she would that she would want to be killed given how compromised she is.
0: Yeah, that sort of dead man walking thing where she's out on the street. She can't commit suicide because they will take it out on her family, you know, but she doesn't want to compromise the resistance. You know, their their willingness to take a cyanide pill, that whole idea of like, well, if you get captured, take a cyanide pill. Yeah.
1: Or if you don't have one, hope that somebody gets himself captured so that he can give you one.
0: Yeah, right. Like if you if you try and put that on a modern context and and think about it in in personal terms like at in what situation would i take a cyanide pill rather than continue to strive to live you know like strive to live against all odds at what point would they would they twist the knife to the point that i would that i would justify to myself like well i'm going to betray my friends <laughs> uh because fuck them anyway uh they didn't fave my instagram posts fast enough they're not my real friends as opposed to like no on behalf of not not just my country but like on behalf of these five people i'm gonna like i'm gonna die a noble death
2: that's such a strange line graph with one line being self-knowledge and another line being fear and where those lines intersect right you yeah. think you you can resist long enough to where you wouldn't need the cyanide capsule, but what if you can't? And that's the insurance. And there's something so terrible about where those lines intersect because that's the moment you take the pill. Yeah,
0: although I think in a lot of cases it's the moment where you spill the beans and then get kicked around in a, in a dank prison cell and then shot anyway. I th- some of that bravery I think comes from the knowledge that, well, I'm dead anyway. Right. But, you know, I think interrogators are really good at saying, hey, look, this is a way out. You're not going to be dead. You're going to go live on a farm. You're going to go live in a very nice place where it's sunny all the time.
2: Yeah, there's that. Uh, there's the SNL sketch where uh, the mob boss is doing the interrogation and they have a uh, doctor nearby with the paddles. And they're just interrogating the guy to death and then paddling him back alive and then interrogating him to death. Uh, uh, uh,
0: uh. Ben, do you notice that, uh, that Adam pronounces it interrogating? Is that a thing that you guys have? Is that a, like a bit that you have on your Star Trek show? Uh,
1: I don't understand why Adam t- says that, but he does say that.
0: He does, yeah.
1: It's How really is it supposed useful. to be said? Well, I would say interrogating.
0: That's what I would say also, because I think that's the pronunciation of the word.
1: Adam's that kind of smart where he knows a lot of words, but only because he read them in a book, but he doesn't have enough friends to have said them out loud to people.
2: He
0: read them in an Archie.
2: (laughs) It takes someone without friends to know someone without friends. Yeah.
0: (laughs) That's why I introduced you guys. I was like... Here's two lonely sad sacks that, yeah. that could not make a friend.
2: It was
1: like you were throwing one of us as a life raft to the other and vice versa.
0: <laughs> hey, you two monkey babies cling to each other instead of this wire apparatus.
2: Speaking of being in a circumstance where you want to take cyanide capsules, <laughs> let's transition into the rating for the film, for each film.
1: Yeah, let's definitely transition. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's a french word for transition <laughs> ben this is my last show fuck you guys <laughs> <laughs> i'm not gonna i'm not gonna run to the end of the shooting gallery for you fuck you <laughs> <laughs> rate your own film <laughs> <laughs>
0: on a scale of one to five angry atoms. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You going to let me rate the film now?
1: Yeah, let's rate this fucker.
2: From one to five cyanide capsules is my scale. I think the cyanide capsule as a thing is of pretty great importance throughout the film. It's referred to more often than is ever seen, but the moment that it is seen is during a fairly harrowing end-of-the-road scene in a prison between Felix and Jardy the Elder, and their faces have been caved in so badly that... They can't even really see each other, but like a tin of Altoids after a fish dinner, (laughs) the cyanide capsules are brandished and the question is posed. And then we cut away. And I thought that was a really effective way to end the scene. You see the capsules, but you don't see them being taken. Well, there's only
0: one. There's only one. That, That adds that extra heavy moment to it. The guy is... Uh, Jardy is giving his only capsule to, to Felix.
2: Yeah, maybe he's just being polite.
0: Well, it is. You're absolutely right. We, we talk about the cyanide throughout the movie, and then when one finally appears, it is a heavy little moment. Göring killed himself in prison the night before his execution. and I, That always confused me growing up. Like, well, what's the difference? Right. Like, why bother?
2: And, but it's like such a fuck you. It's total defiance. There's something about that object and something about how it's used in this film especially that really rang heavy to me.
1: The uh, cyanide pill industry was really, uh, was really booming during World War II. You,
2: you had to collect it from the
0: cyanide bug. <laughs> only lived in a certain part of Madagascar.
2: <laughs> I'd want to keep mine in a, in a funny Pez dispenser, probably. They're not going to check that.
0: I'd keep mine on a locket around my neck with a picture of my daughter, which would give away my entire family because I <laughs> failed to throw
1: it away. Her? No, I don't know her. <laughs> just just like the just picture.
2: A, <laughs> I just cut that out of a magazine. <laughs> That's the picture that came with the frame. Uh, from one to five cyanide capsules, I will give Army of Shadows four capsules. The capsule isn't a positive thing. Much like the tone of the film Isn't a feel-good film at all And so, like, it's almost a good-bad Scale for review here, right? Right What about you guys? How did you feel about it?
1: Yeah, this film was uh, An amazing watch For me I didn't really expect it to be the film that it was And I found that What film I thought it was changed several times Over the course of watching it And I think that it is A film in which a guy who really did it, you know, who was really in the resistance, uh, you know, and basing his film on a novel by another guy who was really in the resistance is kind of challenging the viewer to ask themselves the question, like, what would I do? Would I be the barber that doesn't ask questions, but, you know, trades coats so that the guy can hopefully evade the... Germans that are looking for him? Would I be in the resistance? Would I be one of the cops who is helping the Germans actively? You know, I don't want to turn this into a a total downer, but like I've been thinking a lot about like the fact that we live in a country that lost 1,500 children and is doing just unspeakably horrible things every day now. And I don't know, you know, like we grew up, being told that we live in the greatest country on earth. And I think that there are a lot of things that we can cite to defend that position, but also a lot of people that are working actively in the other direction and we're not occupied. We're not at war as such, but uh, this movie really made me think about what I need to be doing in times where, you know, my country and and my countrymen are doing things in our name that I really strongly disagree with. And I mean, (laughs) I don't think I'm going to be bombing bridges or doing Citroen drive-bys, but uh, it it made me think a lot about that. And, And I think that that is the sort of stated goal of the film and the effect that it had, you know, even 50 years after it was released, even the crappy print that I watched, a spectacularly beautiful film. And it you know, it achieves both, you know, some of the highest uh, achievements in artistic filmmaking, but also in being a film about, uh, about real shit and about being committed to your own beliefs. And so uh, I think I'll give it four and a half cyanide capsules.
2: Ben, should you want to, uh, there is a Citroen on Bring a Trailer right now. <laughs> Auction price now is eighteen thousand so. dollars. Those traction avants are great; tra- they're great cars. Great car. Should you want to change your method of resistance? Yeah, but uh, the, the parts,
1: you know, if it breaks down, it's just so fucking expensive to get it fixed. No, no,
2: no. They made they made them by the hundreds
0: of thousands. You find parts pretty easily. Ben, I think it's a, it's like a truism of any resistance movement. That as you contemplate whether or not to start one, that you talk openly about it on a podcast, because definitely, like when they're looking when they're rounding people up, (laughs) um, and putting them in in, in internment camps, you know, they're definitely going to start with people that haven't already discussed their responsibility to resist the occupation.
2: And if that doesn't work, the only picture I carry on myself is a picture of Ben. Ah! (laughs) i think the one
1: thing that we can count on is that nobody is listening to this podcast (laughs) (laughs)
0: nobody nobody from the uh from ice no (laughs) yeah well you know you never know there are some turncoats in the audience particularly when we review french language films Mm -hmm. it seems like the the uh the cinema professors would turn us in in a second yeah for our failure to appreciate the Subtle subtexts, yeah. Which I'm sure we've done again. <laughs> I'm sure this entire film is a metaphor for Pepe Le Pew.
1: <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm gonna fucking go start chucking grenades at ice offices or anything.
0: It's too late, it's too late Ben. It's too late. It's too late. You definitely on a list cast. now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. A film like this is so much food for thought. And it's it, the, the the problem with situations like this and the one you described, Ben, is that you never I mean, we're always fighting the last war. So it's very popular right now to, you know, to use Nazis as a metaphor all the time. Always, always, always Nazis, Nazis, Nazis to describe every situation, um, every political situation that seems heavy handed. And It's easy to forget that even four years ago, uh, the Obama administration was characterized by people on the fringe right as being a Nazi organization. And the FBI were jackbooted thugs that were coming to take their guns, just like the Nazis. Uh, But what what you never see is the form that authoritarianism is going to take next. It never duplicates the form that it took before. It always morphs to accommodate its the, to accommodate present conditions. So, looking around us right now, you can see five potential directions that authoritarianism is is striving to take in our own time. And is it going to be like a top-down imposition of it from the U.S. government, or is it going to come from somewhere else? Is it going to be is it going to be some movement that flares up and suddenly attracts the interest of a majority of the population like how do those things happen how does it how does it work that something can burble up out of the mire and and become a movement and what side of it do you it's it's easy to say like i don't side with the thugs but what, what happens if the thugs Share some of your sympathies. You know, what happens if the movement you kind of identify with a little bit and maybe it's okay to restrict the freedoms of bad people? What if it's okay to put some people in prison camps because they are bad and you don't agree with all the excesses of the new regime? But some of them are surely an improvement over what it used to be when it was just like radicals in the streets and we're living in a world right now where our own ideology we can very easily tailor our input to comport with our with the ideology that we want reinforced so you can just read the news that you want to read and you can just you can just spend time online with people that already agree with you and you reinforce your worldview you recapitulate the political theory that that you are hungriest for. And pretty soon everybody else looks like an enemy and pretty soon it's really easy. I see it all the time now. Where it's like, wow, that didn't cost very much for you to denounce an entire class of people and and imagine them being put into a camp. And it's not just on the right, you know? Right. You see it all the time. People who very flippantly say, well, you know, these people don't have a, don't have civil rights because they are denying my people their civil rights. And so I'm justified. And that's where that bug of authoritarianism gets into normal people. And then when it starts to happen, when civil society starts to crumble, yes, it's easy to sit here and say, well, I won't be a member of the of the Trump army, but what army are you a member of and what happens if they take power and what happens if they start uh, lining people up against a wall? Are you complicit? Like how how is history gonna judge you?
1: Well, I for one wouldn't wanna be part of any army that would have me as a member.
0: Well, you know what? You're a member of Friendly Fire Army, Ben. Not only are you a member, you're a Reichsmarshal. Oh,
1: God. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. The, uh, the tweets we're going to get about just that. Holy shit.
0: Well, and the thing is, you, you expend so much energy trying to trying to put down Adam's Polishness. <laughs> it's
2: very suspect. Yeah, you're practically an Oberwaffenfuhrer, Ben. Yeah, it's Jesus.
1: <laughs> very problematic. It's really that, creepy. That, that episode of the show that I spent a few minutes dunking on Adam for being a Polish. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Rob don't...
2: edited like 20 minutes of it out, but it, yeah, it was pretty right. bad.
1: Yeah. Well, and
0: they can't, the people can't hear our offline conversations where you basically are just like one Polish joke after another.
1: Yeah, the volume and loudness of uh, of laughs i can get out of john for for doing a Pollock joke on adam though is is all the reward i will ever need to think that that's a great idea going forward
0: <laughs> that was my bi- biggest lol because it took me a second but i really liked this film and particularly for those reasons the uh you know the the movies that we watch that are just like as you guys describe them, just like sitting on a pork chop, (laughs) uh, sitting on a pork chop with a pork chop for a hat, eating a pork chop, (laughs) which is how I picture you guys watching Rambo just covered in pork chops. And then you get a film like this that you, that you walk around with for a few weeks or longer. And if you're not plugging, if you're not, if you, if you watch this movie and you plug all the parts into waiting outlets in your mind about how things are, then you're not list- You're not paying close enough attention because there is no easy analog. Uh, and you should be struggling to make the difficult connections, uh, to a lot of these ideas. And I certainly am. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't mean to sit and, and prescribe it, but this type of stuff causes me to reflect on our current day also in ways that like, uh, that make me uncomfortable. And on my own conduct, you know. Uh, and for that reason, I want to give this movie a lot of
1: praise.
0: It's a very long movie where there's not a single explosion, except for some firecrackers out the window of that Lancaster bomber model.
1: They toss some grenades down into the uh, into the firing range.
0: Those are smoke grenades. <laughs> That was not enough payoff for me. I mean, there was that machine gun going and that was like, yeah, war movie. <laughs> and then some smoke grenades. and I was like, oh man, we don't even get a, nobody like even gets a grenade. But, but more it's just like the pacing is very, is very 19, late, very late sixties in terms of we get to see people think we spend a lot of time watching somebody think, Yeah, which is a mindset you have to get into like I'm watching this movie and I'm going to sit with this I'm going to sit with this movie as we move slowly from room to room. I thought it was black and white. That gives you an indication of like where my mind was. I'm looking at pictures of it online now and I see that it is in very washed out color. I guess I should have known because the guy had a brown leather jacket and I recognized it as brown. Anyway, I give this movie
2: four and a half cyanide pills. It's a good score. Uh yeah, I have a question. Well, while it may be difficult to predict what we would do if the shit really went down, one thing that is easier to call is who your guy might be in the film Army of Shadows. Ben, did you have a guy? Uh
1: yeah, there's a uh character that is introduced very early in the film. Name is Armel. He's uh, described as a Catholic and a teacher. He is sick in bed in the concentration camp when uh, when our hero shows up and is dead by the next scene. And uh, <laughs> I think that's probably about what my response to being in a terrifying war like World War II would be, <laughs> when I would just shut down internally and die without bothering many people. So <laughs> I don't know. It
2: seemed like a pretty big inconvenience to those guys who had to drag him out of there. Yeah,
1: the uh, yeah. Algerian guys that had to go... To go get his body. Uh, so yeah, Armel was my guy.
2: Hey, you guys just going to throw out that mattress? I <laughs> use a little more padding over here. <laughs> uh,
1: how about you, John? Did you have a guy?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, when Gerbier is in London and there's a a nighttime bombing attack, and he's kind of wandering around and visibly freaked out at uh, because you think like oh I'm, I'm going to London I'm going to be safe from the war for a while and have some good food and whatnot and before I have to go back to France and then he he's there and he realizes oh every night they're under constant barrage and Londoners are just shrugging it off you know the bombs are going off all around anyone could destroy the building we're in and life goes on uh, and that was all visible on his face as an actor i thought that was really impressive uh but then he ducks into a little basically just a little cafe where a bunch of soldiers from various commonwealth nations are palling around there are some there are some female soldiers and male soldiers and they're fraternizing and they're dancing to jazz music And it's a weird scene because it lasts a long time and he's just kind of standing there in the doorway. It's not a big room. It's about as big as the room I'm sitting in, but nobody acknowledges him. Yeah. They're just all flirting with each other.
1: Dust is coming down from the ceiling as the bombs hit nearby.
0: Yeah. A strange little moment. And then when he's facing the firing squad, that moment, and in particular, one woman like flashes through his head right that was during the firing squad scene Yeah, suggesting like I mean I don't know what I don't know what he because he focuses on or in that scene but he's looking at a lot of people in that in that moment like what it was whether that was meant to show us that in your last moments who knows what you're going to think about you're, it's not your whole life that flashes before your eyes it's something that happened two weeks ago uh, seemingly random or whether there was a, that that woman and that little moment made a real impression on him but there was a woman in that scene who was dancing to the jazz music and the camera spends a little bit of time on her feet, watching her feet. And then it sort of pans up and it shows her face just briefly, but it, it but it, it lingers on her feet, a dark haired woman in a military uniform dancing to jazz. And she is such an awful dancer <laughs> and her dancing is so ungraceful and like, like not, jazz it's just like bad and it, and it's the one moment where you feel like oh this movie's being made in the 60s it, because it looks so good it looks very much like a movie made in the early 50s about World War II but it's 1968 and they could not find a young woman who knew how to dance jazz and she's dancing like go-go or something <laughs> I just couldn't believe that they couldn't find somebody that knew how to that knew how to swing and so she's my guy for sure <laughs>
1: <laughs> ironic because uh they hired a bunch of dancers to play the german soldiers marching down the champs elysees in the in the opening shot because they couldn't get french soldiers that could walk like nazis uh,
0: oh i should i want to just just call out that shot Because at the start of the film, we see the, we see troops and we hear the band and they're coming around the Champs-Élysées, uh, around the Arc de Triomphe and they get closer and closer and you cannot identify them. They just seem like anonymous troops. And it's only right as they near the camera that you see that they're German. And that was a very effective minute and a half.
1: Yeah. It's an interesting shot. It, uh, in the initial release of the film was the last shot. And Melville decided that it was more effective if it was the first shot. So he, he had all the theaters that already had the prints cut it out and move it to the beginning. So uh, there's like part of it that was apparently missing when they went to do the restoration print because uh, it has been cut so many times. Well, guys, do you want to uh, pick the next film that we will watch here on Friendly Fire?
2: I'd like to share oh, wait, my guy uh, with you first. Oh, no, uh, shoot, that's okay. Adam's got
1: a guy. So forgettable. I, uh, I, not, I almost fo- I forgot you were a going. part of the program, man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I think based on my treatment in this and every other episode of the show...
1: Oh, come on. I've gotten might, dunked it, on as bad or worse as you some, some of these episodes. It may not surprise
2: you to, that I consider myself uh, a stoic at best a pacifist at worst. I can think of worse things that you are. (laughs) When you guys were reviewing the film, you were talking about how easy it would be to, well, how it couldn't help but make you think about what role you would have in a situation like this. And I think the selection of a guy is one of the ways you can do that. For me, I felt like the barber was my guy for that reason because I would predict... Uh, that I wouldn't be super heroic in a situation like this, but I could also predict that uh, that I would be pretty stubborn in my activities should uh, should I be living in a city that were taken over. And so, Lucien, the barber, or at least the barber who works in Lucien's the barbershop he looks like someone who's going along with the game. He looks like someone who isn't going to be a threat to anyone else. But inside, inside, you know where his allegiances lie. And so in giving his shave and giving his jacket, uh, he's able to resist in his own way. And that is a way of acting and a way of feeling and a way of doing that I found pretty relatable to me. So the barber is my guy.
0: When our hero... uh runs into the barbershop panting looking for an escape and the barber comes up from a basement room and his response is what do you want (laughs) i really thought of you adam (laughs) i was like that's the kind of customer service that i would expect from adam pranica's barbershop
2: what do you want yeah three stars (laughs) for my barbershop on yelp does an okay shave Okay, customer service shitty parking (laughs) He gave me a good shave, but I didn't like the magazines (laughs) two stars didn't really want to talk sort of forgot He was there most of the time took my good jacket and gave me a shitty jacket
1: (laughs) Well gentlemen, do you want to uh, select our next film? That's the part of the show That's the part of the show that we are at (laughs) That's the part of the show. It's uh, 156 films on our big list. Yeah. Jen, do you want to uh, toss out a number?
0: So we 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 have some rules, though, right? The rules are that we can't do—how many World War II movies can we not do in a row? I
1: think we can't go more than three in a row, but we've only done two and in a row. We've only
0: done two. Okay adam, I've never consulted you on this what 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 would your move be a hundred and fifty odd films where would you go sixty nine <laughs> <laughs> it has never occurred to me to do sixty nine well that is where so I let's would do it of course it
2: wouldn't 69. occur to you John you're not a giver <laughs> well
1: Gentlemen, you'll be delighted to know that we are out of World War II and into the Cold War. It's 1964's Stanley Kubrick masterpiece, Dr. Strangelove.
0: No way.
1: Yeah. John, you put this on the list. Uh, any, any thoughts?
0: Well, it's a movie <laughs> that hopefully everyone has seen already. Yeah, of course. And uh, we, we don't see a lot of war comedy or farce. Um, Although you could argue that the Rambo films are farce.
2: Uh, It's war and farce, which is, as we all know, a hell of a combination. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's going to
0: be like, you know, tonally, I I mean, it's a, it it will be a dramatic contrast to most of the things we've seen. And and even the one, even the, the movies that have been nominally comedies, this will stand in bold relief because it's one of the,
2: the classic uh, dark comedies. You know, I hate to give you anything else to make fun of me for, but I've never seen this movie.
0: Oh, Adam. <laughs> you've got to be kidding me.
2: <laughs> God this damn This is it. a terrible Adam episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, whose fault is that, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in for it. You're really down on friendly fire about now. Almost 40
1: times you've, you've uh, traveled around the sun and you've never set aside a couple hours to watch
2: Dr. Strangelove. I was too busy rewatching Rambo two <laughs> for the fortieth time. I love all
0: of the messages I get, email messages and tweets from people that are like, "Look, I'm even I'm even younger than Adam and Ben, but I've seen Mash," <laughs> and I'm like, "Thank you, thank you." Thanks, Grandpa. Okay, like I, I hear that a lot. Um, well, I have to assume then, Adam, that you are representative of a of a. A slice of people that listen to this show that have never seen Doctor Strangelove, and on behalf of you all, I uh, I'm so excited because uh, it's a because uh, it's a, a, a great film, and we don't get that many Cold War movies. Uh, we haven't gotten them because uh, because Cold War movies so often are spy movies, right? Rather than war movies, but this is going to allow us to to talk about a lot of sort of Cold War stuff and uh nuclear war stuff that is um that's been lying dormant in us and we need to redress that because i feel like the cold war qualifies as a war yeah but that doesn't open us up to james bond movies or anything like that so (laughs) just settle down
1: we'll let rob take it from here so (laughs) for adam pranick and john roderick i've been ben harrison (laughs) Au allez, les <laughs> alertes
2: Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast. It's hosted by Adam Pranica, Benjamin R. Harrison, and John Roderick. This show is edited and produced by me, Rob Schulte. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can visit MaximumFun.org donate. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Do you feel like joining in the conversation? Well, you can over at Facebook and Reddit. We've got pages there that you can talk to a whole bunch of other fans. You can find Ben on Twitter at Benjamin AHR. Adam is at CutForTime, for Time. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Please use the hashtag #friendlyfire when you tweet. Thanks. We'll see you next week.
0: maximumfun.org
1: Comedy and culture. Artist owned.
0: Listener supported.